Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading this morning is taken from Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning at verse 15 and going on to chapter 7, verse 3. And it's found on page 489 of the Church Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 6. Verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son, Jehohanan, had married the daughter of Meshullam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, make them shut the doors and bar them. Also, appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. This is the word of the Lord. If you notice that Janet was smiling this morning, that's because when she first looked at what was expected of her, she was expected to read the whole of chapter 7. <laughs> now, it is worth saying that we will come back to those names, but we're going to do that in chapter 11 because there are many of them are repeated, so we will come back and look at that together. And Janet, maybe we could get you to read that, we'll see. <laughs> Well, a particular warm welcome to all of us this morning, particularly if, uh, if you happen to be here because you, were, uh, you attended the event uh, that uh, Dan was speaking at last night, and we're particularly delighted to, to meet you. Please do uh, make yourself known to us. It was a great evening. Uh, thank you so much uh, for, for supporting that. It's great to see so many people who are, who are genuinely interested in, in the things of Christ And so let's really pray for that, that that out of that event, and indeed all these conversations that we're having with so many, that there'll be a genuine response and an interest, and uh, pray for Thursday evening, uh, Christianity Explored, as Matt leaves that, that uh, there'll be a good turnout. Uh, Just before I I, I actually open God's Word this morning, if if you don't mind, I'd just like to to say just a very short word uh, about um, 
the Church of England's uh, bishop's uh, recommendation um, that, was, uh, that came out on Friday and that will be considered at uh, General Assembly in February. Uh, and can I, can I just say to us that for us personally as a church, I don't think that announcement could have come at a better time uh, as we are in this season of prayer. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's in such a, a unifying space for us uh, to gather together, to, to gather as we did on that Wednesday evening and to find that there wasn't enough room down here that we had to break up into the gallery to pray. And genuinely, we, we believe the Lord is doing something fresh and exciting amongst us as a congregation. And so, let me say to us that before we rush to respond, surely our, our first instinct should be to bring this, this, this um, response, as it were, from the bishops, to bring this to the throne of grace, to seek his wisdom to pray for uh, John Dunnett and uh, CEC and um, for our Orthodox bishops, for our Orthodox representatives of General Synod who are meeting, have met, and will continue to meet to think through the best way to respond. So surely at this time, our response should be one of prayer. And particularly as we pray, let us remind ourselves that Jesus is the head of the church. Well, before we look then at God's word, would you join me for a short prayer? Father, we are conscious again that we sit under the authority of your word, the scriptures. And Father, we have been in this space listening to you speak to us through the book of Nehemiah. And again this morning, we pray that you would give us ears to hear. Come draw near to us, we ask in your name. Amen. Now someone has said that the, uh, the Bible is actually a book of invitations. God inviting us in the first place to come and find rest for our souls. And then an invitation to discipleship. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then finally, an invitation to live in the realm of God. Abide in me and I in you. An invitation to partnership, a lifelong, eternity-long devotion to Christ. And the story of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of desolate Jerusalem is one of the greatest examples of partnership in the Bible. It's a story of where the impossible becomes possible. Nehemiah, he prayed a, a bold, audacious, and impossible prayer. He waited for months, and then God answered a huge, improbable yes. It's a stunning story. It's an exciting story. It's a story of God working again and again against the odds. It's a story of restoring of a people from ruin and despair to a new walk with God. It's a story that inspires all of us to live wholeheartedly for God in a time and an age when it seems so difficult to do so. Ultimately, 
It's a story that depicts for us a man who takes up the invitation to partner with God. Because that is what is happening when Hanani, freshly arrived in Susa from Jerusalem, sets out the terrible state that Jerusalem was in. You see, that was God's way of saying to Nehemiah, will you partner with me? in a great project of rebuilding and restoration, and Nehemiah gladly committed to do so. Now, we are approaching the halfway point in the book of Nehemiah, and it is worth reminding us that the central theme that we've come across in this book, this golden thread, if you like, that runs through this book, is that God works faithfully through faltering human beings to establish and accomplish his work of salvation. God works sovereignly through people like you and me to accomplish his marvelous work of redemption. God works through means. He calls and he commissions us, having given us the gifts and the abilities in order to serve him. And to go and do that which is for his glory, that which is pleasing in his sight, and ultimately that which has eternal weight and significance attached to it. But the other prominent theme that we have encountered in the book of Nehemiah is also that every genuine work of God will inevitably run into difficulties. And those difficulties will take the form of opposition from outside or sometimes from within. And it's important. And I think that this is what we've been reminded of week in, week out. We must remember Satan, God's enemy, is constantly at work to frustrate and undermine the work of God and God's people. But in the midst of all that, in the midst of this spiritual warfare, we have these beautiful passages, like Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph speaks to his brothers, and he says to them, what you intended as a malicious deed, as an evil act, God turned it around, and he used it for his good and for his glory. And that's the message weaved throughout Scripture, isn't it? Even when our plans and what we endeavor to do are frustrated, it is God who works all things for the good of those who love him. And we've encountered something of this in the book of Nehemiah. We've seen opposition to God's work, and yet as we saw last week, God is the one that graciously strengthened the hands of God's people uniting them and helping them to plod on and to get the task finished. So that ultimately, it is the Lord who receives all the glory. And that's what we're going to see again in these verses before us this morning. In a space of less than two months, the unthinkable has happened. Verse 15, so the wall was completed. But I want you to notice the detail here in this verse. But the wall was completed with the help of our God. Now that's the language of partnership, brothers and sisters. 
a wall that is nine feet thick, two miles in length, around the great city of Jerusalem, and it was completed in 52 days. Now, even, I would suggest to you, even with our, our modern equipment, that would be some accomplishment. And it's meant to be a stark reminder for us that when the hand of God is upon the people of God as they faithfully labor, the Lord does the seemingly impossible that the glory may always be His. So let's explore then what partnership looks like in more detail. And let's notice first, partnership with God. And that first point is up on, on our screen. Partnership with God in completing the wall. See, when Nehemiah records those words in verse 15, so the wall was completed, one can almost imagine there was a sense of relief in his tone as he's, as he's penning that down. That the milestone has been reached, that the Rubicon has been crossed. And I imagine it must be something of what some here felt when news was shared that the building for the future project was completed. Certainly, I'm sure the likes of Alan, he's already smiling at me, uh, and Paul felt like this. You know, you can finally move back from the church center into the church. Great news. But as much as it was a relief, for Nehemiah, there is also in those words, so the wall was completed, embedded thankfulness and praise to God for his faithfulness in listening and in hearing and in bringing it to pass, answering the prayers that Nehemiah had laid before the throne of God. And you remember them well, I, I'm sure. Nehemiah, you recall, receives the news regarding the state of the city of Jerusalem, and specifically the walls. And Nehemiah is immediately cut to the heart, and he fasted, and he mourned, and he prayed, and he did that for four months. And in some sense, he was, he was pleading to God to come down and to, to restore both the walls and, and the people of God, that they would once again be a great witness to the nations around them. And then, of course, throughout the building process, we have these arrow prayers. Nehemiah, you see, understood that it was God who made them prosper. Chapter 2, verse 20. It was God who protected them day and night. Chapter 4, verse 9. It was God who fought for them. Chapter 4, verse 14. And as we were reminded last week, it was God who strengthened their hands to accomplish all that they were to accomplish. And what we're going to see this morning is that it is God who accomplished this work through partnership with his people. Now, I love what Thomas Watson, one of the Puritan writers, says. The tree of mercy will not drop its fruits unless shaken by the hand of prayer. That is a beautiful image, isn't it, for us? And in some sense, Nehemiah's life <clears throat> and his prayers that come to pass, that's a, that's a testimony exactly of what God is able to do and what he wants to do through his people. Now, as we look then together at these verses, particularly verses 15 and 16 in our passage, it is very easy to miss two points I just want to highlight for us. First, verse 16. Right at the end, we read there, this work had been done with the help of our God. Now, notice that it's, it's not God's people that are making that observation, that statement. 
Because no sooner is the project complete than the enemies of God are having to recognize that this was simply not humanly possible. They're having to recognize that God was at work behind the scenes. Verse 16, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations realized that this was done with the help of our God. You know, Sam Ballot, Geshem, and Tobiah, they, you know, they're like the three witches in Macbeth. You know, sort of uh, plotting and, um, and planning, waiting for that opportunistic moment to strike with seeds of dissension and looking for the opportunity to bring destruction. But it's those three enemies of God that now have to stand back and profess God has been at work through his people. And second, just something else briefly, if I may, just want to point out to you. You know, we read that this work had been done with the help of our God. Well, that word done is, um, is not in the original Hebrew. The, the verb that is present in the Hebrew is actually a passive word. It, it, it meaning accomplished. In other words, the work was accomplished or acted upon by God. So, so in other words, the implication is that this, the, the rubble and, and the stone that was sort of lying around, it, it was God who, who acted upon it, and it was him who formed it into a wall in 52 days. It was all God. And now, now of course, you know, there, there are this sort of... Um, um, I suppose the construction crews, is that what you'd call them? They're made up of farmers and, and priests and, and women, you know, young people. Uh, almost certainly the pathfinders would have been involved back there in those days. And, and, and there are all these sort of people, I suppose, very much like, like us, not really skilled in, in building, but we were sort of gathered around. We'd probably have to ask Tom, who knows a little bit about building, to guide us a bit, and have one or two people who could, could help us, but most of us wouldn't have known. But the point is that nevertheless, the, the Lord has equipped us. He's equipped his people, and he's enabled them to do this work. But at the point of the text here is that it's God who's doing the work through them. And in some sense, by saying, this was accomplished by our God. You know, just that accomplished by our God. Now, that word, our God, what's, it seems as though the enemy finally perceived, they finally understood, they finally grasped that this was not a, not a physical battle they had been fighting. But it was a, a spiritual battle. And that their false gods ultimately had lost. And it was the real and the living God who had won. They had been defeated. They had been crushed. And the impact, look at verse 16 again. Look at the impact they had, it had on them. They were afraid and lost their self-confidence. Now, I'm sure you remember, don't you, that the tactics that Sam Ballot and co. Had, had used against Nehemiah and the people of God. It has been, hasn't it, throughout, one of seeking to intimidate them and, and to make them fear. And it's almost as if at this point, when the project is complete, God has turned what they strove to do back on themselves. Look how, how they're broken and how they're filled with fear as they recognize what has taken place. Verse 16. Now here is the encouragement for us. In the midst of our battle with sin, 
And as we pursue our various ministries to reach those who have not heard the good news of the gospel, it is crucial, it is vital that we remind ourselves that our enemy is a defeated enemy. His plans will not prevail. And yes, he will attempt to show that they will prevail, but they will not. They will only fail. For Christ's resurrection has secured the victory for us. The blood of the Lamb has secured you, brother, sister, has secured us. And reminds us of that hope daily that the promises are ours in Christ Jesus. So let me say to all of us this this morning, take confidence. The Lord is with us and he is hearing our prayers, even if at times it feels like he isn't. And that brings me then to my second point. We've considered partnership with God, but I'd also like us briefly to look at partnership against the enemy. Now I want us to notice there in verses 17 through 19, the manipulative way of the enemy. Now, in some ways, these verses are meant to indicate the sort of final flail, a last-ditch attempt to try and sow one further seed of discontent to try and bring a destruction to this project, but it doesn't work. Now, in chapter 6, we've already seen ways the enemy uses to attack us. Three of them we looked at last week against Nehemiah. Remember that the enemy uses flattery. They tried to to persuade him to to leave the work of God and come to the village of Ono. But we learned, as one person put it, Ono, don't go to Ono. Nehemiah wasn't taken in by the flattery. The enemy then used fear tactics. They spread these malicious lies, again using sort of this unsealed letter. And then thirdly, they tried to scare him to run and hide in the temple, which would have been breaking God's law. And Nehemiah responds by praying. But in our verses 17 through 19, there's actually a fourth way of assault. And in some way, I think that this is probably the most subtle of the lots. Now, you'll notice there in verse 17 that the nobles of Judah are corresponding with Tobiah. And Tobiah is uh, corresponding with the nobles of Judah. And he's also in touch with some of the priests. Verse 18, Meshulam was a priest. If you just turn over your page very quickly and look at chapter 11, verse 11, you'll see that. Okay? He's a priest. So if you come back quickly, and what we see there in our text that we're looking at is that Tobiah and Meshulam are related. They're related by marriage. Now, you may recall this obscure reference uh, in chapter 3 that I made you know, a couple of months ago, I guess. And you remember that I highlighted that, that, about the bolts and the bars? Do you remember that? And as the gates were completed, the gates were building the walls, and as the gates were completed around the city, uh, they were finished off with bolts and bars as a sign that the gates were sealed to outsiders. Shut. All the gates, that is, apart from the gate being built by the priests. And the inference in the text is that the priests, or at least some of them, were still carrying on with the likes of Tobiah and couldn't be trusted. And we see evidence for it here. And it's a reminder that just because someone is ordained, it doesn't mean they are to be trusted. 
we must always test the way they are living and what they are teaching against the authority of Scripture. Now we see here that many of these nobles are bound by oath to Tobiah, verse 18, and these, these oaths are beyond just the marriage vows and the marriage affiliation, the family affiliation. There's, there's political and there's economic ties. And these strong bonds are bonds that are not to be broken and connections that are not to be betrayed. And it's these nobles in Judah, people that are supposed to be on Nehemiah's team, who are essentially telling Nehemiah daily about the good deeds that Tobiah is doing. You know, and it's this sort of drip, drip, drip. Come on, Nehemiah, he's not that bad. Do you remember how he did that for us? That was helpful, wasn't it? Do you remember that? Maybe, maybe having economic affiliation with Tobiah might not be such a bad thing for our future after all. Yet all the while, Tobiah is the one who is also sending Nehemiah letters of intimidation. One commentator I read said, fear is Satan's weapon that is held in reserve. And that is essentially what is happening here. The whole thing was a charade. See, what Tobiah was communicating with the, Nehemiah, with, with, the, with the nobles was different to the way that Nehemiah, that Tobiah was actually dealing with Nehemiah directly. So Nehemiah is dealing here with a devious and a manipulative individual. And now we've all known, haven't we, manipulative people whether they are work colleagues, friends, or family. They're the, the people who know how to push our buttons. They might coerce, criticize, undermine, intimidate. Or they can flatter, offer sympathy, act innocent, but not with sincerity. It's all you see, emotional blackmail. It's manipulation, and it's exhausting and distressing, isn't it, to deal with manipulative people. It's hard enough when unbelievers behave like this, but it's even more distressing when those of us who know Christ are not straightforward and above reproach. We know our tendencies. Some of us are clever and can engineer and manipulate situations for our own gain. Let's not do that. Let's rather not be successful or not get what we want instead of behaving like that. Please, let's be above reproach with one another in our dealings with others. For as Tobiah was learning, and he was learning the hard way, the Lord honors people who are faithful and true to God. And this further fear tactic, it's a reminder that we must be aware of Satan's schemes. We mustn't be naive. Let's remember that the real battle is spiritual, that he is a roaring lion who seeks to whom he can devour. And that's why we're encouraged, aren't we, in Ephesians chapter 6, to stand firm with the whole armor of God on. So know your God. Press into Jesus when the battle becomes warm and hot. Press into Christ, confess your sin, keep short accounts with the Lord and keep on doing that which pleases him. Obey his word and grow in knowledge of him. By the way, 
It is in large part because of the heat of the battle that we have made it our goal to seek more of Christ this year. You see, we have been under such attack as a church that we realize that we cannot resist the evil one without Christ. We almost daren't attempt to try to do so. People have asked me, you know, Johnny, tell me, what is your strategy? What is your vision? What are you going to take us? What are you going to do? And the answer is, is I don't have one. I have one thing I can bring you, and that is church, let's turn to Christ. And as we do so, we will see that he will do new and fresh and exciting things amongst us. And let us, let us recognize that if nothing else that we have learned, and I have learned this personally in my own struggles and disappointments, then I am utterly and completely dependent upon Christ. So here the opportunity this presents this morning to renew our commitment to Christ. But before we do that, I'd like us to think about our partnership in Christ with one another. See, we've considered partnership with God and partnership against the enemy. Let us just notice finally and briefly, partnership in community. Now, by now, I hope we have realized that people don't work well in isolation. We need together to work. And if we work together, we get things done. I, I, we saw this just before Christmas on that Saturday morning, those who were part of it. There was, there was a team, a willing uh, team of volunteers who came together in the church center to clean it. And, and it was rapidly done. And you ask Fiona, it was done very, very quickly because we all worked together. We all rolled our sleeves up and uh, some of us were not very good at cleaning, but we all had a go. And as someone said, individually, we are one drop. Together, we are an ocean. So having built the wall with the help of God and having weathered the, the enemy with the help of God, the work is still not yet done. Because from chapter 7 right through to the end of the book, we're going to see that it's actually all about growing the community. It's about building up the community of faith. You see, rebuilding the wall was never the ultimate goal here. Don't be distracted by this project that Nehemiah has been leading, that is set before us. The people you see are the ultimate concern. And it was the same with our own building for the future project. It was never really about this building. It was about building up the community of faith. It was about giving us the best spiritual home to worship. And that's actually what truly broke Nehemiah when he heard the reports of what was happening back in Jerusalem. You know, he, he was principally concerned about the trouble that the people of God found themselves in. That they were living in this broken state. And now with the wall having been reestablished, it was an opportunity to build up the people of God so that they may taste and see again that the Lord is good. So in chapter 7, in these uh, first three verses, Nehemiah tells us how he begins this project of cherishing and building up the community. Notice first, would you, that Nehemiah institutes worship. Verse 1, he appoints gatekeepers, musicians, and, and the Levites. In other words, he institutes worship in the city. And why does he do that? Well, Nehemiah, you see, understands the human condition and the human heart very well because having completed the wall, it would be easy for them to sit back and just relax because the defenses are now up. But in some sense, Nehemiah here wants to remind them that in actual fact, the true defense is the Lord their God. It's what we've been doing 
with this month of prayer. The Lord is the one that enabled them to do what they've done, but ultimately, he is the one that is going to be their ultimate defense. And so he wants them to worship and have their priorities straight to help them keep their eyes fixed on the Lord their God. Now, friends, as we seek a church to know Christ, as we seek a church to be awakened, worship is absolutely central. Gathering together like this on the Lord's Day is our priority in the week. And it's crucial. This is where God meets with us as his people. As the word of God is expounded, the spirit actually quickens the heart and does a work of grace in each one of us, individually and corporately as the church. Secondly, having instituted worship, notice in verse 2 of chapter 7, he appoints godly leaders. Nehemiah selects his brother Hananiah and the commander of the citadel, Hananiah. Men to safeguard the work of building the community that has begun. Men of integrity. Men who, all you'll notice there, feared the Lord. See, Nehemiah understood that unless a man who was appointed feared God and actually lived a life of integrity before the people, they would not command the respect to love and care for them. And we want to be led by those sorts of people. Don't we? I certainly do. You know, I give thanks for those godly leaders who have modeled to me Christ. So Nehemiah reestablishes worship. He then appoints godly leaders. And then thirdly, we notice that he nurtured the community. Verse 3. And the first task that was given to these leaders was to encourage the people of God to work together, to encourage them to take responsibility for the work, to use their gifts, to use the abilities that have been entrusted to them for the greater good of the corporateness of the people. In other words, they were all, they were to stand on the walls to protect their families within, to protect their homes, to protect God's people. Now, they have already grown in love and their care for one another, for their neighbors as they've worked together on building their parts of the wall. And so now what Nehemiah is saying is, don't let us slip and slide. We've built this project. This, let's, don't let us slip and slide now. Let's not rest on our laurels. Let's continue to grow in grace, grow in love, so that ultimately this worship that we have of God and how God is, is molding us and shaping us together, it becomes a beautiful light to the surrounding nations. Now these last few years have been so disorientating for so many of us in so many ways. And our prayer is that a day will come when we will look back and say, Although the enemy meant it for ill, the Lord allowed what happened for good. It is during those unsettled times that we often come to see with greater clarity what has been obvious all the time. And one of those for me is, is this. As I have grappled and wrestled outside of the church here, but with other situations and other circumstances, one thing that has become very clear for me is that only Christ is the true shepherd. It is him that we must seek to be like. It is him 
who we should strive to follow. That's why we are sitting under the teaching of Paul from his letters to the church in the Philippi in the evenings, who models this posture so well. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, he says. And it is to Christ who I'd love to invite us to make our commitment to shortly. Friends, in our pursuit of Christ-likeness and our desire to build and expand and advance the kingdom and the message of the gospel, in the midst of this spiritual battle and the opposition that we sometimes struggle with and we face, let's remember what and who the real focus is. It is on Christ. But the wonderful truth of the Scripture is that we have been given one another to help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And here's the thing. We cannot do it in our own strength. I certainly can't. I need your help. And I suspect you need mine. We need one another. We need together to come to the Lord asking him, God, as you have begun the good work in us, God, we are reliant and we are completely dependent upon you to help us so that we may know more and more of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would nurture us as a community to love one another like Christ, to serve selflessly like Christ, to give sacrificially like Christ, and to speak boldly of Christ. For to him be all honor and glory. Amen.